Well, good morning. Uh, and I also, I want to thank uh, Greg and Ryan and Logan uh, for the trust that they've placed in me, just in allowing me to share the Word of God uh, with you this morning. Um, I'm honored and I'm humbled by that. Um, I don't take lightly uh, the responsibility that it is uh, to divide the Word of God uh, properly and with truth. Um, but I also take comfort in the fact that the effectiveness of God's Word is not dependent on me. It's not dependent on my clever illustrations or the words that I say, but rather as the Word of God goes out, the Spirit of God is active in the hearts of the hearers. Um, so I pray today that as we examine Romans 5, verses 6 through 11, that the Spirit will soften your heart, um, that God will speak to you right where you are, and that Jesus would be lifted up and glorified. And I also pray that your trust in God would grow uh, through, the, through God's Word today. Well, last week, as we resumed our work through the book, uh, through our, our walk through the book of Romans, we were reminded of the fruits of justification. Uh, Logan reminded us, reminded us of three benefits uh, that we receive because of our justification. First, we have fellowship uh, with God through the peace provided by Christ. Second, we have fortitude to persevere through trials and difficult times as our character is developed and as God's purposes are revealed in our lives. And third, he said that we have hope for the future as we stand declared entirely innocent before God. Today, as we give our attention to God's Word in Romans 5, 6 through 11, we're going to add to that list of benefits that come to those who place their faith, who place their trust, who place their hope in Jesus Christ. As Logan said last week, justification is that work of God by which those who trust in Christ are declared not guilty. And God pardons all of our sin. In addition, justification declares that all of the claims of the law are satisfied. And the law has no claim at all on the one justified. It's the declaration that God makes as judge toward all who believe. The law is not relaxed, it's not ignored, it's not set aside or, or winked at, but it is declared to be fulfilled in every aspect. The person justified is declared to be entitled to all the advantages and all the rewards arising from perfect obedience to the law. As we read God's Word today, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, and stand, if you are able, out of respect and reverence for God's holy, infallible, and completely sufficient Word. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ God died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for your uh, perfect word to us. We stand amazed that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We give you thanks for the perfect sacrifice that you gave to us in Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that through your Holy Spirit, your love is poured into our hearts. I pray that through your word, our souls would be lifted up and strengthened today. And I pray that Jesus Christ would be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. When we, when we consider the question of the death of Christ, one of the questions that we can ask is, when did Christ die for us? Now, we can look at that question strictly, we can look at it from a couple of different viewpoints. One would be that we can look at it strictly from a chronological calendar viewpoint. We can look at the calendar and say, well, Jesus died for me in 32 AD. There was a specific year, a specific month, uh, a specific day, a specific hour when Christ died for us. At a given point in history, uh, Christ died for us. Um, to, To point to that date and answering that question would certainly be true. But this was not just some random time, some haphazard circumstance that happened. Uh, We see in verse 6 that the death of Jesus happened at the right time. Um, Other translations say that Christ died at the appointed moment, or in due time, or at just the right time. The death of Christ was not by accident. It occurred at the exact place and the exact time that God had decreed. We see this repeatedly in Scripture, events occurring exactly when God determines that they should occur. Again and again, we read that God acts in due time, at the right time, at the appointed time, in the fullness of time. For example, in Psalm 102, verse 13, we read, You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. Or in Galatians 4.4, we read about Christ's coming. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then in 1 Samuel 1.20, we read about Hannah, who was waiting for a child, and it says, In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. God will not be early, and he won't be late. God's timing will not be rushed, and God will not procrastinate. His timing toward us is perfect. Um, We're all familiar with due dates. I know when, when Tammy and I were expecting our four children, we were giving a, given a due date for each of those kids. All four of those kids ignored those due dates. 
Um, and we all get bills, whether it's by mail or, or these days we get them by email. And sometimes we pay early. Uh, sometimes we pay right on time. And sometimes we miss the due date. But God is never late. His timing is perfect. Today you may be waiting for God to give you something. Or maybe you're waiting for God to take something away out of your life, whether that's a heartache or, or a health issue or, or something of that sort. You can trust that God's timing will be just right. Even if that thing that you're waiting for never comes, even in that, God's timing is perfect. You can count on it. Jesus had a sovereignly devoted a sovereignly designated appointment to die for the ungodly. And it happened at the right time, at just the right time. But we can also view this question of when uh, Christ came to die for our sins from another perspective. We can look at the timing of Jesus' death from, from the perspective of what state were we in when, when Jesus died for us? How are we described at the point when Christ came to die for us. Well, in verse 6, we see that we were weak and ungodly. In verse 8, we're described as still sinners. In verse 10, we're described as enemies of God. So from that perspective, we can answer the question of when Jesus died for us like this. Jesus died for us when we were powerless, ungodly sinners, battling against God in every way. It doesn't paint a very attractive uh, picture of us, does it? See, we were born into a state of spiritual death. We were born so deep in sin that we did not have the moral capacity to incline ourselves toward God in any way. We had no desire toward the gospel. We didn't have any want to toward the gospel. See, salvation is 100% from beginning to end an act of God. It's not 99% God, and then there's a little bit of good in us that gets us the rest of the way. It's 100% an act of God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says, And you were dead in the, in the trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God made us alive, able to respond to the gospel because of the great love with which he loved us. You see, God's love is centered in himself. So what kind of love must it be that God would give his son to die for us? Paul examines that question in verses uh, 7 and 8 uh, today by comparing the love of God with the love of man. First, in verse 7, he says that a person will rarely, if ever, die for a righteous person. So what does he mean by a righteous person? So a righteous person here is a person of impeccable character, moral, loving, kind, considerate, giving, full of all the admirable qualities that you can think of to the greatest extent. Someone that we would look up to and admire. 
Paul says that one would probably not be willing to die for a person like that. And we know that from our experience to be true. Just because someone has great character and we look up to them and we admire them, we're probably not going to die for that person. But then Paul goes on to say that a person would be more likely to die for a good person. Well, what does Paul mean by a good person? Why would it be more likely that we would die for a good person than for a righteous person? Well, in 1994, country star Tim McGraw uh, released a song entitled Don't Take, that, Don't Take the Girl that went to the top of the country charts. The song is about an eight-year-old little boy named Johnny who's going on a fishing trip with his dad. They're getting their gear together and getting ready to leave, and all is well, and Johnny is looking forward to this day of fishing with his dad until a little girl walks into the yard with the fishing pole. Johnny sees the girl and realizes that his day is on the verge of ruin. Johnny sees the girl and he pleads with his dad, Oh, Dad, please, don't take the girl. You can take any boy in the world, but just don't take the girl. It makes sense, doesn't it? A girl on the fishing trip is going to ruin everything. Because to an eight-year-old boy, girls are, well, I think there's really only one word for it. They're yucky. To an eight-year-old boy, girls are yucky. But they don't always stay yucky. The scene shifts in the second verse to 10 years later when Johnny's now 18. He and this girl are coming out of a movie theater together, and they're greeted by a thief who holds them at gunpoint. Johnny pleads with the, with the thief. He says, you can take my money, you can take my wallet, you can take my credit cards. He gives the thief uh, a keepsake watch that his grandpa had given him, uh, and he even gives him the keys to his car. But he pleads with the thief, please don't take the girl. But then in the third verse, the scene shifts to a hospital five years later. The girl's now having their first child, and the doctor comes out to meet Johnny, and He says that the baby's fine. The baby's been born and the baby's fine. But he tells him that his wife isn't doing so well. And he doesn't know if, in in fact, if she's going to make it. At that news, Johnny drops to his knees and he prays to God. And he says these words. He says, take the very breath that you gave me. Take the heart from my chest. I'll gladly take her place if you'll let me. Make this my last request. Take me out of this world, but God, please, don't take the girl. So what changed from that first verse, where Johnny didn't even want to go fishing with this yucky girl, to the third verse, where he would give his own life in place of hers? Of course, the answer is obvious. It's love. It's a relationship. This is the dynamic that Paul is talking about when he talks about a good person. Would someone die for a righteous person with whom they have no relationship? That's very unlikely. Would they die for someone for whom they loved and for whom they had a relationship? That's much more likely. But when we look at Christ dying for us, neither one of those scenarios is true. When Christ died for us, were we righteous? (laughs) Certainly not. 
Was there anything in us that would make us attractive and lovable? Did we have a relationship with Christ? No. In fact, Christ died for us when we were his enemy. See, this is where we see the difference between human love and God's love. When we love someone or something, it's based on the attractiveness of the object of our love. When others are pleasant toward us, when they're meeting our needs, when we're having a good time with them, we love them. But when they're disagreeable and selfish and stubborn, our love is less or it's even non-existent. When my dog is catching the frisbee with me in the park, I love him. When my dog has diarrhea all the way down the hallway the night before I'm leaving on vacation, I hate him. I can tell you that from experience. Our love tends to rise or wane based on the circumstances that we see at the time. Our love is centered in the loveliness or the attractiveness or the pleasure that the object of our love gives to us. But that's not so with God. God's love is not centered in the attractiveness of the object of his love. God's love is centered in himself. God loves because it is his character to love. In that way, the love of God is different from human love. That's why John says in 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Another translation says what manner of love the Father has given to us. Is John emphasizing the size and the magnitude and the quantity of love that God has for us? Well, yeah, he's certainly doing that. But he's also emphasizing the fact that God's love is different from ours in its quality. It's of a different manner. It's of a different kind. Uh, He's saying, what kind of love is this? Because God's love is of a different kind, centered in himself, rather than the attractiveness or the pleasure the object of his love gives to him, we can be confident that God's love does not change. Because God's love is of a different kind, Paul can say in Romans 8, 38-39, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when you begin to look at your life and you see all the unlovable parts of your life, you may, get, you may begin to think, how can God possibly love me? Remember that God loved you when you were weak. He loved you when you were a sinner. He loved you when you were ungodly. He loved you when you were his enemy. He loves you not because of your attractiveness or your performance. He loves you because he is love. He loves you because he loves with a different kind of love. When you begin to have doubts of God's love for you, look to the cross and look to God's character and know that nothing can separate you from a love of that kind. 
So when we think about God's love and that Jesus came to die for us, we can also ask the question, why did Jesus come to die on the cross? Why was that necessary? Now, one answer would be that he had to come to pay the price for our sin. Well, certainly while that's true, but, but that alone did not make dying, Jesus dying on the cross necessary. God could have chosen not to save anyone from their sin. Jesus would not have had to come and die on the cross. And God would have been perfectly just in condemning all people. So in a deeper sense, what necessitated the sacrifice of Jesus for our sin is the love of God. It's the love of God for his son in giving him a people. And of course, it's the love of God for us in saving us. It's because of the love of God that Jesus came. And it's because of Jesus' love for us that he gave himself willingly to die on the cross and be sacrificed for our sins. Now, after Paul in this passage describes God's love, in verses 9 and 10, twice we encounter the phrase, much more. So let's look at these much more statements one at a time. Now, the idea of being saved naturally implies being saved from something. We're saved from a burning building, or we're saved from financial calamity, or we're saved from a health scare, or we're saved from an awkward conversation. Uh, We are saved from something. Well, when my youngest daughter, Rachel, was two years old, we took a trip to uh, Disney World. And one day, one day as we were there, we went to the water park, uh, the Typhoon Lagoon. Maybe some of you have been there. And we had a great time. Uh, but at one point during the day, I carried Rachel in my arms into one of the, their large wave pools. And as I walked in, a big wave came up. And for a brief moment, I lost my balance and I dropped Rachel. And it was probably no more than two or three seconds before I regained my balance and picked her up. Now, when Rachel tells this story, she likes to say that her dad almost drowned her. But I like to tell it from the perspective that I saved her from drowning. But the point of the illustration is that for someone to be saved, they must be saved from something. So when Jesus saved us, what did he save us from? We see the answer for this in verse 9. We are saved from the wrath of God. The love of God saves us from the wrath of God. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. Now, there are many today who would like to ignore the wrath of God, but it's real and it can't be ignored. There are also many who would say that the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath, but the God of the New Testament is a God of love. But the fact is that God is the same yesterday and today and forever. God hates sin in the Old Testament, and he hates sin in the New Testament, and he hates sin today. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 9, 7 through 8, we read about God's wrath. Uh, he's speaking about the Israelites coming out of Egypt, and he says this, the word says this, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt 
until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. But we also read of God's wrath in the New Testament. In John 3:36, we read, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And again in Romans 1.18 we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then in Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. <clears throat> the wrath of God is the permanent attitude of the holy and just God when confronted by sin and evil. It's a personal attribute of God, just like love is a personal attribute of God. And just like God's love, God's wrath is an attribute to be praised. God is a God of holiness and justice. And just as we don't hold an earthly judge in high regard who is inconsistent in his decisions regarding right and wrong, God would not be worthy of praise either if, we were not, if he were not consistent in his judgment towards sin and evil. It is, in fact, right not only for God to hate sin, but for us to hate sin. The word says, you have loved righteousness. In, this is Hebrews 1.9. It says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. It's always a good question for us to ask ourselves, do I hate my sin or have I become comfortable with my sin? Because of our sin, we were all at one time destined to experience God's wrath. Ephesians 2.3 says that we were all by nature children of wrath. And we had no way to be saved from this calamity. No way to be saved from drowning, no way to be pulled from the burning building, no way to be rescued from eternal punishment. But God did not leave us in our helpless estate. The love of God for sinners expressed in the life and death of Jesus is the theme of God's word over and over and over again. Because Jesus experienced on man's behalf and in his stead the misery the afflictions, the punishment, and the death, which should have been our lot as sinners, subject to God's wrath, we are saved from the wrath of God both now and the wrath to come. Because of that, Paul can write, since therefore we are now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ are certainly saved from the wrath of God. We have nothing to fear. John 4, 16-18 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. 
So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have conf- so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, who place their trust in him, replace the fear of the day of judgment with confidence. Perfect love casts out fear. Romans 8.1 says, therefore, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So as, follower, as followers of Christ, we are certainly saved from the wrath of God. But we are also saved to all of the benefits that come our way as a result of us being reconciled to God in, in his life. In verse 10, Paul makes a strong argument that if, Jesus, if God gave us Jesus to reconcile us to himself while we were his enemies, how much more will he give us now that we are in fact reconciled to him? Not just a little more, does Paul say, but he says much more. Let's look at just a few of the ways that we're changed by the reconciliation that God provided to us in Christ. First, before we were reconciled, in verse 6, we were still weak. But in 2 Timothy 1.7, after we're reconciled, we read this. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We're no longer weak, we're full of power. Second, before we were reconciled, verse 6 says that we were ungodly. But after reconciliation, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf, of, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the, recon- we might become the righteousness of God. After reconciliation, we're no longer ungodly, but now we are the righteousness of God. Third, before we were reconciled, verse 8 says that we were still sinners. But after reconciliation, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, we read, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, 
And let's be honest, and such were some of us. But we were washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. After reconciliation, do we still sin? Yes. But we've been washed, and we are in the process of being sanctified day by day to be more like Christ. Fourth, before we were reconciled, verse 10 says that we were enemies. But after reconciliation, in Ephesians 2, 13 through 16, we read, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. After reconciliation, we are no longer enemies, we are no longer hostile, but we're now at peace with God. And again in Colossians 1, 19 through 22, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. We are no longer enemies at war, but now we're at peace with God. And in John 15, 15, we're no longer called enemies, but Jesus called us friends when he said, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Because of the death of Christ, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And because of the death of Christ, much more will we be saved by his life. Our only reasonable response to that sort of reconciliation is joy. Verse 11 says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Today, if you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, you are not weak. You have a spirit of power. You are not ungodly. You are the righteousness of God. Even while you still sin, you are no longer under the power of sin, and you are one of God's saints. You are no longer an enemy of God. Rather, he calls you his friend. We have been saved from the wrath of God. And we have been saved to all of the benefits that God showers down on us day by day because we have been reconciled to him. As we consider that truth, our hearts are overwhelmed with joy, and we rejoice in God. As we close today, I want to ask you to do something. Look around this room. You have my permission to turn your head away from me. Uh, Look around this room. Look at this gathering of the people of Emmaus Road Church. Look at your family. Uh, look at your friends. Uh, look at, around at those who are in your MC, uh, those who are in your discipleship huddle. Uh, 
look at all of those in this gathering of Emmaus Road Church who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. As you look at them, I want you to think this amazing truth. Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Christ died for us. There can't possibly be anything more than that. But Paul says there's much more than that. He says there's much more than Christ's death because he saves us not only by his death, but he saves us day by day by his life. Let's pray.